Good morning, New Hope family. Very glad that you're here. Maybe you're joining us through the broadcast. Maybe you're waiting to see what's going to happen after Judges 19 last week. <laughs> I had lots of conversations this week, as you can imagine. Especially young women between the ages of 25 and 35 who came up to me and said, that was not in Veggie Tales. <laughs> that is true. And nor will you find it and focus on the family's version of Odyssey. And um, that, that really caught you by surprise, didn't it? <laughs> it it's just, my daughter called me this week, uh, Mackenzie's um, up in Traverse City listening, and uh, she said, Dad, I, I don't think I've ever heard that story before. Well, first of all, most people skip over the book of Judges, right? And Judges 19 is definitely not on your bestseller list of things you want to read. It's, it's got incredible darkness to it. What we're coming into this week is the other half of the story, the rest of the story. And I told you it was a two-parter last week when we talked about it. This is not as dark as that was. It's very action-packed, but it is definitely cringeworthy. It's got elements to it. They're going to make you just wish you didn't see it in the Bible, but it's there. So I'm going to start out with you, and I want to pray with you in just a second before we, we jump in, but I, I want to start out with a verse, and it comes from the book of Philippians, and it kind of frames where we're going with this. Philippians chapter 2, it reads this way, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's supposed to be the goal. Huge, huge responsibility for someone who is a Christ follower. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you recognizing that this could be incredibly disjointed simply because we don't have the framework of history and understanding what these people were trying to do. So it leaves us confused and therefore we ask that you would help us to be taught by it because you promise that your word is inspired and that it's profitable and it's good for teaching and it's good for correction and instruction. And it's good for helping us adjust our lives to your mindset. So I come before you right now on behalf of every one of us asking that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would teach us, frame our thinking, shape us so that we would have the mindset of Christ. We pray for this in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, the single greatest challenge to someone who professes to believe in Jesus is what you read on the screen, maintaining the mind of Christ. Paul writes that we have the mind of Christ if you're a believer in Jesus. It's, it's there because of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. But maintaining that mindset and what Philippians 2 is talking about, it starts out by talking about Jesus even though as God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled Himself and became, became a man. So still fully God, but fully man. And obedient, it says, unto the point of death, emptied himself. That's the mind of Christ, that we would be obedient to God in everything. So we would say Jesus had a complete biblical worldview, far beyond anyone who has ever walked this planet. A biblical worldview is fleshed out this way. If you're not familiar with that term, think of it this way. What you believe about God, 
determines what you do next. If you've been here any length of time at New Hope, you've heard me use that phrase probably two or three times last year. It is true. You check it in every single thing that you do, believer and non-believer. What you believe about God determines what you do next. Now, if you're not familiar with the concept of a worldview, just let me help you with that just for a couple seconds, 30 seconds. Look with me on the screen at this definition from Oxford's Dictionary about a worldview. They they define a worldview as this, a, a particular philosophy of life or your conception of the world. A good example of that would be in the world of politics. If you're a person who embraces capitalism or perhaps you embrace socialism or communism, or perhaps you follow democracy or maybe theocracy. Depending on which bent you align yourself with, it very much affects how you vote and your perception of human rights and what people should have and what they should not have. It's part of the way you view things. In a nutshell, a worldview is your collection of beliefs. It's the lens through which you view the world, and that translates to action. You do what you do because of what you believe. Illustrate it this way. You're driving along, going down the highway. You believe you can get away with speeding, so you speed. It's what we do. If you didn't believe you could get away with it, you wouldn't do it. So what you believe determines what you do. It results in action, and we take actions which reflect our beliefs. So that's why I say what you see on the screen. What you, you, what you believe about God determines what you do next. Now, in the framework of a biblical worldview, a biblical worldview means that you've been shaped through the lens of that which God declares to be true, your interpretation of what God declares. That's called doctrine. But when a particular group of people say they belong to God, but do not make life choices based on what God declares to be true, but rather on what their own personal view is, they have taken an apostate position. In other words, that's a person who follows God and says, yeah, I agree with what you're saying, God, until they come to something they disagree with God on and go the opposite direction and say, yeah, on that thing I'm not going to agree with him and become apostate and go in the other direction willingly. Well, that's a match for Judges 21, 25. Look with me at this. We started the book of Judges here, and we're ending the book of Judges here. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That particular statement is a match for a Greek philosopher by the name of Protagoras. He lived around 400 B.C., and his philosophy was that man makes all the rules. He's an atheist. And Protagoras held the position very, very firmly that man is the measure of all things. Well, that's a match for Judges 21-25. Everyone's doing what they see right in their own eyes. I don't often quote myself, but I'll quote myself this morning. This is what I said to you last week. In a world in which individuals make themselves the measure of all things, eventually the individual accounts for nothing. We make the rules. We can diminish human value. Human life becomes really cheap if we make up all the rules to suit our own personal desires. Good example is Judges 19. 
that young woman was sacrificed at the whims of those men because in their worldview, her life was worth nothing. She was cheap to them. In the view of the Levite who pushed her out the door, her desires outweighed by his desires because in his desires, he wanted to save his skin. So he was willing to sacrifice her skin. Her life was cheap in the eyes of the Levite and in the eyes of the guys who did the gang rape. Their actions match their worldview. Everyone has a worldview, whether or not you think that you do. Good example would be put a porterhouse steak in the middle of a dining room table. Let's say it's hot off the grill and there's a baked potato next to it. You can tell I'm hungry, right? Okay, to a farmer who is a cattle rancher, he sees his source of income. To biologists, they see the biological life behind that. To an artist, they see the potential of something that they could paint and put on canvas. To a teenager who's hungry, he sees supper. We all see things through our worldview. What we want to see through that particular lens is affected by our values. Everyone has a worldview. In the book of Judges, what we've seen is a worldview that's fleshed out in the lives of people who say that they belong to God, but their life choices are the evidence that they do not hold a biblical worldview. Rather, it's all about their rules. So today, what you're going to see, and we're going to move through it pretty quickly. We're not going to hit all the verses. We're going to take it in a big chunk. When man makes himself what you're going to see, the measure of all things, it leads to total chaos. And what it starts out with is a response by the nation to the death of this young woman. Pick it up with me in verse 1. Then all the sons of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, came out, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. The chiefs of the people, even all of the tribes of Israel, took their stand in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. You, if you were here last week, you know that there's been an enormous atrocity committed within the walls of their nation. This young woman has been not only raped but brutally murdered. And as a result of that, the Levite took action and he cut her into 12 pieces as we saw last week. The, the people of the nation have a huge response to this because they know that this was committed by the tribe of Benjamin and it triggers, triggers civil war within the nation. Now, predictably, the nation reacts with this scorching fury. Uh, notice this. Throughout the book of Judges, no one has been successful at uniting all of the tribes. All of the 12 tribes have been fractured since the days of Joshua. But this one actions, because it's so atrocious, it brings together all of the people and it galvanizes the entire nation. Verse 3, now the sons of Benjamin heard that the sons of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. Now that's a really confusing statement there because the sons of Benjamin are the sons of Israel, but they're sectioned out. They're one of the 12 tribes, and they're on the outside looking in, and they hear that the other 11 tribes are getting together. Now, here's the other 11 tribes. And the sons of Israel said, 
tell us, how did this wickedness take place? In other words, they're talking to this Levite guy. Verse 4, so the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came with my concubine to spend the night at Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. So far, it's true. Watch verse 5. But the men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me. Instead, they, have, they ravished my concubine so that she died. And I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout the land of Israel, through, throughout the land of Israel's inheritance, for they have committed a lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Behold, all you sons of Israel, give your advice and counsel here. Now, on the surface, his speech seems impressive. He's very specific. He's using a very deliberate choice of words, quite graphic. However, He's making sure that he comes out of this whole mess looking as righteous as possible. And knowing what you know about this guy from last week, it's pretty easy to have disdain for this Levite. He's not only a major creep, he's extraordinarily self-serving. If you noticed, everything that he said there was in the first person singular. It's about me, what they did to me. They wanted to kill me. They came after me. And he says nothing about his relationship troubles or how they ended up in Gibeah in the first place because of his failure. And then he twists the truth and he does this half-truth thing and leaves out some pretty important details. He says they intended to kill him. Well, they actually came there looking for an opportunity to commit homosexual activity in the form of rape. And then he doesn't tell them that she died because he pushed her out the door. And he doesn't give any detail about his behavior when he tripped over her body in the morning when he goes out the door. None of that is filled in. He does, however, accurately characterize their actions as lewd and disgraceful. And he says, that's the reason. That's the reason I cut up her body so that everybody would know this, that this deed would not go unnoticed. And his explanation does the job. They are unified as a nation after this. And the 11 tribes, they agree that they're going to punish the perpetrators from the tribe of Benjamin. And they agree that no effort will be spared in order to deal with this vileness. Verse 8, And all the people arose as one man, saying, Not one of us will go to his tent, nor will any of us return to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. In other words, they're going to throw the dice. Thus all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united as one man. So the nation's leaders say, no one's going home. We're going to take care of this mess right now. But the first indication that things are not going the way they should go and that they're going wrong is how they determine who's going to lead this. They're not asking God what to do. They're going to throw dice. Literally, they're going to throw the lots and let chance decide. So the, the leaders of Benjamin are aware that this military force has gathered. They're on the outside looking in. They decide they're not going to go to the conference. They're going to boycott it. So the very first response is when the warriors show up, the 400,000 with leaders in front of them, and they challenge the warriors of Benjamin. Watch with me. Verse 12, 
Then the tribes of Israel sent men through the entire tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has taken place among you? Now then, deliver up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah. These are the guys that committed the gang rape. That we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. But the sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. So the nation's leaders have decided, we're going to give you guys a chance. We want you to turn the thugs over. We're going to give them justice exactly as they deserve. And so they use this phrase in verse 13, we want to remove the wickedness. The, the word remove actually means purge. And purge in that language actually means to consume. In other words, they had consumed the young woman, and now they're going to be consumed with retribution. And they're just carrying out capital punishment, which is very clearly defined in the book of Deuteronomy. They're coming with law behind them, and they confront the leaders of Benjamin with the law of God. But the leaders of the tribe of Benjamin prefer to take solidarity with the rapist instead of turning them over for justice. When you read the book of Judges and you see that it says everyone's doing as they saw fit in their own eyes, you do logically ask yourself the question, like, how far gone are these people? Well, this is how far gone they are. They're confronted with the truth of what has happened. They're confronted with the Word of God and what God said in His law, and they refuse to heed the Word of God. They're not going to turn over these sons of Satan. Rather, they choose to defend them. And that is impossible to understand unless you understand that they have become fully apostate. Yeah, we know what God says. We know what God told us to do, but we want this instead. And so they choose to go the opposite direction. And so what began as a corrective operation in order to clean up the mess turns into full-scale civil war. Verse 14, the sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the sons of Israel. From the cities on that day, the sons of Benjamin were numbered 26,000 men who draw the sword. Besides, the inhabitants of Gibeah were numbered 700 choice men. Out of all these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So they've got on their side 26,700 warriors. It's a lot of guys. That's, that's almost twice the capacity of the Breslin Center. Breslin seats 14, 5, 15,000. So they've got 26,700. It's a lot of people. And they've decided they're going to take their stand against this massive army of 400,000. And it seems like they're extremely outgunned. But history tells us that the men of Benjamin are, have an excellent reputation as the most elite soldiers. And these guys are really good with ancient weaponry. They're experts in the bow and in the sling. They can do it with either hand. They can hold a shield with right hand and sling with the left hand. They are remarkable individuals. Historians tell us that these guys were so good that they could throw a one-pound stone at 90 miles an hour up to 100 yards and hit their target. If they reduced it to a half-pound stone, it would increase to 130 miles an hour. So they can do some serious damage from a long distance. So these superior skills that they have offset the disadvantage of the numbers. Verse 17, 
And the men of Israel, besides Benjamin, were numbered 400,000 men who draw the sword. All these were men of war. And just to save you a whole lot of reading, and there's a lot going on, and we're going to skip way down, this really large group of 400,000, they decide to take on the 26,000. And they try on the first day, and they are humiliated in their defeat. This group of 26,000 warriors take out 22,000 of Israel in the first day, and it seems like they don't lose any of their troops. And in the second day, they take out 18,000 more soldiers. Two overwhelming routes of 40,000 soldiers, 10% of their entire fighting force are lost in two days, but on the third day, the tables turn. And because the sons of Israel, that big army group, they decide to set an ambush and they completely trap these guys and the corpses of 25,100 elite soldiers are scattered across the battlefield. Verse 35, drop all the way down. And the Lord struck Benjamin before Israel so that the sons of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day, all who draw the sword. So this time, the surviving Benjamites don't have any recourse whatsoever except to run, and they literally run for the hills. They head for the Jordan River to a cave system. They go above the Jordan River to an area called Ramah, and it's this limestone hill. It's pockmarked with all kinds of caves in it. They call it the pomegranate hill because it's got so many pits within it. And the last 600 men make it there, and they find refuge in this cave system. A thousand more soldiers have fallen along the way, even trying to get to the caves. But now the warriors of Israel recognize we can't get those guys. They're in a safe place. Besides, they're really good with their weapons. We have to leave them. So in rage, the warriors of Israel turn back to the cities of the tribe of Benjamin, and they slaughter the entire population, old people, women, children, all of their animals, and then they torch the place, verse 48. They struck them with the edge of the sword, both the entire city with the cattle and all that they found. They also set on fire all of the cities which they found methodically with no mercy. The soldiers of Israel destroy everything associated with Benjamin. It is utter carnage. And God did not tell them to do that. And that's how chapter 20 ends. The, the final chapter of Judges, 21, that you're coming into now, is perhaps the strangest chapter in the entire Old Testament. Chapter 20 closes with Benjamin virtually wiped out, except for this frightened group of 600 fugitives who are huddled together in this cave system. Now, somewhere in the midst of all this turmoil and all this chaos, apparently the leaders of the nation of Israel decide they're going to make an oath to each other, and it's an emotion-based oath. Verse 1, now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, none of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. So the people came to Bethel and sat there before God until evening and lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. Verse 3, then they said, 
Why, O Lord God of Israel, has this come about in Israel so that one tribe should be missing today in Israel? Well, because of what you just did. Unlike most armies who would be celebrating their victory, they go to mourning. So you have to really check about what you're reading here. They eliminated that tribe. Their weeping is over the death of an entire population, but they did it. So what you need to notice here is the change of heart that's going on. There's an accusatory tone towards God. God, I thought you were our God. Why are you not protecting them as though God failed to protect Benjamin? And God's silence, check it yourself, read it later today, God's silence here is deafening. There's no response because they didn't do what God had called them to do. They decided to take matters into their own hands. So it seems that they suddenly recognized the punishment went way further than what they intended. And on top of that, they made this really dumb oath to each other. You're not getting our daughters. Check it yourself. God did not command them to do that. And now they're regretting their oath. So back to the cave system. you got these 600 guys who are hiding in this pomegranate rock. They're all that's left of the tribe of Benjamin. All the women have been slaughtered. But because of that oath, these 600 guys are doomed to a life of celibacy, which means there is no future for the tribe of Benjamin. And then someone comes up with this incredibly stupid idea, definitely not a biblical worldview. Verse 5, then the sons of Israel said, who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken, here's another one, they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. And the sons of Israel were sorry for their brother Benjamin and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? This word great oath, it, it means an exceedingly big promise. You couldn't make a bigger commitment. So their great oath is this. Anyone who did not join us in the massacre of the tribe of Benjamin, we're going to put them to death. Check it, church. The smoke is still pouring out from Benjamin's territory. The reality of the whole brutal episode begins to dawn on the remaining 11 tribes who in the heat of the moment took on this second oath. None of our daughters are going to marry those guys from Benjamin. And now they're left with a dilemma. Wait, we regret what we did. How are we going to give wives to those ones who are left? Benjamin's line is going to die out. If your head is hurting at this point, I understand trying to track this, but watch where this is going. Verse 8, and they said, what one is there of the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. You're familiar with the phrase compounding blunder on top of blunder? We've all done it. 
I've done it. We make a one stupid decision and it seems to be amplified when we make another stupid decision. They're doing this in spades. Blunder on top of blunder over and over again. And they ask this stupid question. Did anyone fail to participate in the purge? And they do a quick review and they discover, yeah, these people in that town over there on the other side of the Jordan River, the people from Jabesh Gilead, they didn't show up. And when they discover this detail, they decide to use the second vow to get out of the mess of the first vow. Now, Jabesh Gilead is on the other side of the Jordan River, two miles away. Who knows why they didn't show up for the massacre? Maybe just the entire nasty episode was not of any interest to them and they didn't want to pardon it. We're not told. We don't know. But the leaders of Israel decide those guys, they deserve to be slaughtered also, just like the tribe of Benjamin. Except what they don't tell you there is it's for a hidden purpose. Their logic is this. You're going to see it next. They're going to save 400 virgins. They want to kidnap them because they have a nefarious purpose. So 400 young women will be stolen and taken as prisoners. Verse 10, and the congregation sent 12,000 of the valiant warriors there and commanded them saying, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword with the women and the little ones. This is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man and every woman who has lain with a man. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. I, honestly, this story makes my head hurt. There's so much chaos going on here. And many people after the 9 o'clock said, I had a really hard time following that. If that's you, just know this. What's going on here is really dark logic. New Hope, what, what a tangled web we weave when everyone does as they see fit in their own eyes and make up their own rules. Four months have passed since these Benjamites have gone to the caves to hide out. And eventually, the anger of the general population of Israel begins to subside. In the midst of that, they decide to kill everyone in this town called Jabesh except for the virgins because we'll take them to the 600 surviving soldiers of Benjamin. So suddenly, out of nowhere, People are in their own town and their town is getting stormed and they slaughter everyone, women and children and old people. And the sole survivors are these 400 young women who are abducted and given enforced marriage to the remaining survivors of Benjamin, the tribe they personally destroyed. It hurts, verse 13. Then the whole congregation sent word and spoke to the sons of Benjamin who were at the rock of Ramon and proclaimed peace to them. Benjamin returned at that time and they gave them the women whom they had kept alive from the women of Jabesh Gilead, yet they were not enough for them, meaning they got a mathematical problem. They took 400, but they got 600 guys. They got 200 guys who still need wives. 
Can I emphasize for you that there is no biblical worldview going on in Judges 20 and 21? This is not the way that Jesus thinks. It is not what Jesus would do. They could wear bracelets instead of WWJD and WWJD, not what Jesus would do. This is not biblical actions. Verse 16, then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives for those who are left, meaning the 200 left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin. Yeah, because you killed them, verse 17. They said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin so that the tribe will not be blotted out from Israel, but we cannot give them wives of our daughters. For the sons of Israel had sworn, saying, cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. Not an oath, by the way, that God told them to keep. Track this. They annihilate an entire population, destroy cities filled with their own people. Yet they can keep their vow to each other. None of our daughters are going to go marry those Benjamite guys. But they cannot keep their vows to God. Covenant vows of following God no matter what. They will not keep those vows, but they'll keep that stupid vow to each other. And they consider it appropriate to give away the survivors of a massacre which they instigated, these stolen girls, to give them away to guys they have no relationship with and we're not done yet. Here comes the ending. There's this shortfall of these 200 women. They've got to get 200 more, so time to capture some more virgins. So the 200 surviving soldiers of Benjamin are sent to a festival at Shiloh because they know there's going to be a big party there. There's going to be dancing. There's going to be celebrating. And you guys can go there and you can grab a girl. Verse 19. Brilliant. So they said, Behold, there is a feast of the Lord from year to year in Shiloh, which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south side of Labona. They might as well give them the GPS location. They just gave them the street address right there. So here's our solution. There's this festival in Shiloh, and there's going to be a lot of people there. There's going to be a lot of dancing going on. So during the celebration, during the dancing, you guys can go pick out the girl that you want. Verse 20, and they commanded the sons of Benjamin saying, go and lie and wait in the vineyards and watch. And behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances, then you shall come out of the vineyards and each of you shall catch his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. Guys, that is not a strategy to get a girl. Sorry. They're told to set the ambush, and the strategy works flawlessly, and every one of them steals a young woman. You want to define distress in a family? Let a family member go missing. For these moms and dads and brothers and younger sisters to have to watch these warriors come rushing out of the grapevines and snatch their sisters, their daughters, and drag them away would be distress on a level most of us could never imagine. The leadership is sanctioning unspeakable terror, and I'm left asking this question, wait, how in the world is that any different 
than what happened in Judges 19 last week. Young woman is snatched for the whims of guys who want to do whatever they want to do. How is this any different than Judges 19? In the midst of this festival, these unsuspecting young women are snatched and dragged away from their families. And here's the rationale behind it. Verse 22, it shall come about, not if, because they know it's going to happen, it shall come about when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us that we shall say to them, give them to us voluntarily, because we did not take for each man of Benjamin a wife in battle, nor did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty, the sons of Benjamin, meaning the 200 left guys. They did so and took wives according to their number from those who danced, whom they carried away. And they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the cities and lived in them. It is hard to find any redeeming value whatsoever in what you just read. Except for a thousand years later, the tribe of Benjamin is going to produce a guy by the name of Paul who wrote the book of Romans. That's great. But out of this, out of verse 22... You have to say, this is, this is despicable. You would expect those who are the protectors and the leaders to be the rescuers, but it's the leaders who actually devise the scheme. And they're saying, hey, when the families protest, and we know they're going to, by the way, when, the, when they do, we've got a pre-prepared statement. And they transgress every possible standard of morality. None of these guys from the leaders of Israel will give their daughters in marriage to the Benjamites, but they're going to put those other fathers in a really bad light by saying, you have the audacity to put your personal interests ahead of the national interests. Shame on you. The hypocrisy is off the charts. And so then comes verse 25 of chapter 21. In those days, there was no king, and I would add to that, yeah, and including God because they would not let God be king. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. What a spectacular failure when everyone does what they see fit in their own eyes. Life becomes cheap when we make up the rules to suit our own personal desires. Individuals eventually count for nothing, and it's always horrible. The young women of those murdered families dragged from their homes, forced to live with men whom they have zero relationship with. The other young women in the midst of the celebration of the daughters of Shiloh are ambushed, and they're abducted from their families. And the rape of one individual in Judges 19 becomes the rape of 600 by the time you get to the end of the story. And the land is strewn with 65,000 dead warrior bodies and thousands upon thousands of dead women and children because disobedience to God always causes chaos. Now here's where it gets really personal. There's a great quote from Martin Luther. I want you to see this. It's in your notes. No one wants their sin to be sin. Everyone wants their sin to be righteousness. It's from his commentary on Genesis. We're going to leave it up there for a second for you to chew on that. Understand exactly what Martin Luther is saying. 
the human talent at which we are experts is the skill of justifying our actions. We never start out our day by saying, I'm sure you didn't get up this morning and say, man, I cannot wait to commit sin today. No one starts out their day saying, you watch how evil I can be. No one does that. But rather, what we do is we find that our actions are responses to situations. And so we respond this way. I'm going to do something to him because he deserves it. I'm going to get something from her because I deserve it. What Luther is saying in his quote is, humans are excuse-making machines. We are highly skilled at justifying our actions through our lens of rightness, what we think is right according to our worldview. It's the only way to understand the horrendous series of events that are unfolding in Judges 19, 20, and 21. Each of the players in the story in these various stages, they're doing exactly what they do because their belief is driven by doing what is good in their own eyes according to their worldview. Because we are sinners born into sin, we are born with the skill of transforming our sinful actions. Thus you find the writers of Scripture saying things like Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Have Jesus' mind in you. Maintaining the mind of Christ is the single greatest challenge to a Christ follower throughout the course of their life meaning putting God's priorities first in everything. If after reading the book of Judges and you, you're weary of all the chaos and the division and the injustice and the failed relationships, I get it. We find ourselves, after all this time in the book of Judges, really longing for a true deliverer, a deliverer who will restore things to their proper order one who specializes in making all things new. His name is Jesus, by the way. But He doesn't come on the scene for a thousand years. So before we can even get there, we find next week that God will raise up one last judge, and He will restore righteousness to the nation. His name is Samuel. It's a great story. Don't miss it. I look forward to a brighter day. How about you? All right. Let's pray and ask God to use this as we take on the week. Father, we willingly recognize that we do feel that sense of disjointedness in reading these stories. It's so hard to track it. But out of it, we see the reality that you do use Scripture to instruct us in righteousness. We can easily see the contrast, Father. So it's hard to say thank you for the story, but thank you for having the record of it. That you would use it in our life this week as we take on this week and try and speak into the lives of individuals who have no relationship with you. Even for ourselves, Father, as we try and adjust our lives to the mind of Christ. God, use this for us to strengthen us, admonish us, correct us, encourage us. Send us out now with your blessing. We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.